for your grace to us. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated and good morning. Y'all doing well? Well, we're glad to have you. For those of you I've not met, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. You know, Mark earlier mentioned, uh, and I just wanted to re-mention, this is a great time of the year to get involved in connect groups. So a number of them took some time off over the holidays. New ones are getting started. In fact, Tammy and I are going to be hosting one. And we're going to be doing uh, actually Financial Peace University. So if you've never done that, how the Bible tells us to deal with our, our finances. We're going to be doing it on Wednesday nights. We're starting on February the 8th at 6.30. Would love to have you come be a part of ours or lots of other groups. So please make sure you get signed up for that. Secondly, we have mentioned a few times we're taking a uh, trip to Greece and it's uh, end of May May 26th I think is when we start and I usually got about 90 days out with some travel things my travel agent reminded me that uh, it's not necessarily a really hard day to say you can not sign up after this but they're going to start letting some things go so if you are interested uh this would be a great week to let them know, get your deposit in, and if you're going Greece trip, I haven't heard about it, I have brochures for you, so there you go. Got your Bibles today, we are in Revelation 20 and 21. So we're doing this little mini-series entitled, What in the World is Next? So when we look at this crazy world, what is coming? And of course, the Bible is our, our source of truth. And if you missed last week, would really encourage you to go back and to take a look at it. Uh, because one of the things that we took some time is to look at some of the prophecies of the Bible and how it the accuracy with which the Bible does tell us what is to come. And so the next big biblical event is the second coming of Jesus. So Jesus is going to return. Remember when he was there in the Mount of Olives, he went up, the angel showed up and said, this same Jesus which is taken up is going to come again, right? That's the next big event. And then what we looked at is what, what happens just prior to that. So what are some of the signs? What are some of the things that are happening? And it's called the tribulation. So seven years when God is going to begin to judge the world, and in preparation for Jesus' return. And then it all culminates at the great battle of Armageddon, which is explained, not a great battle, because Jesus just takes care of it, right? Uh, but he returns, and so that's the next big event. What we're going to talk about today is, so what happens then after Jesus' return? Because you and I get to be a part of that. One of the big questions people have was, well, Steve, you haven't talked about the rapture, right? What happens to Christians? And I'm glad you asked. Next week, we're going to talk about the rapture. So, and if you don't know what the rapture is, make sure you come. If you know what the rapture is, come. We're going to talk about it in great detail. A lot of discussion is when does the rapture take place? A lot of debate about that. Come next week, I'll tell you the truth, okay? So there you go. You got that. And all of this actually leads up to, in February, that first weekend in February, we're beginning our new book series, because that's kind of what we do. We study books of the Bible. We're taking the book of Revelation. And it starts off with Jesus' communication both to 
uh, John, literally, and then these letters that he's writing to seven local churches. And so that's where we're going, and that's what's going to happen. But today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. What, after Jesus' return, What's going to happen? Where is this going? So if you've got your Bibles in Revelation 20, we're going to read the first uh, six verses together. So if you'll read them while I read them aloud, that would be great. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast. Or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehand and on their head. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part of that first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So when Jesus comes back at the battle of Armageddon to establish his kingdom, he is going to reign. That's why we call it the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. So for a thousand years, in a sense, you go back to Genesis and what what God had always designed is beginning to happen, right? So, so this is a, a, a kingdom of justice and righteousness, and Jesus is on the throne. Now, the question is, why a thousand-year reign here, and then some other things are going to happen in eternity? Why not just head us into eternity? Well, part of this is, is that God made the world originally to be under the authority of, of God, right? We were his image bearers. We were to reign and subdue and do all of this. Sin entered in. And so God now here on earth is going to establish his reign and his rule, which has been under the reign and rule of Satan for all of this time. And so he's going to begin to, in an essence, to kind of undo. Plus, there are some Old Testament promises that God made that he hasn't kept yet. We just taught, sang about God's faithfulness. And I love that song, you know, why would he fail me now? He won't, right? He's faithful. He's true. He's just. He's going to keep his promises. So God made promises, for instance, to Abraham about the land in which his, his descendants would have. So if you remember the story, it was in Genesis chapter 13. Lot has just separated and gone down towards Sodom. Abraham is someplace between Ai and Bethel, which if you're familiar with Israel, is kind of on the east side. It's in the Jordan Valley there. And this is what the Lord says to him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Look northward, southward, eastward, and westward from all the land which you see, and I will give it to you and to your descendants 
forever. Has God fulfilled that promise yet? The answer is no. In fact, it's interesting from where he stood, if he's going to look eastward, he's actually looking over the Jordan River into the area of Gilead where when they first came in, God gave to the uh, tribe of uh, half tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Reuben Gad. They don't have it today. Today, if you go over there, that's Jordan. So God has not fulfilled this yet, but He's going to in the kingdom. He made promises to David. It's called the Davidic covenant. Uh, remember when David wanted to build a temple and God said, "Well, you're not the guy. Your son is. You can prepare it, but but you you don't do this, but." but you're blessed and I'm going to make you, uh, your kingdom great. And this is what he said, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Has God fulfilled that promise? Not yet. Right, that's why they're always understood that the Messiah would be of the lineage of David, right? Because of these promises. Last week we looked at that great promise about Israel, that Israel in the last days would be regathered to its homeland. It was made by Ezekiel back in about 550 B.C., so 2,500 years ago. And God literally fulfilled that in 1948, right? Never, ever happened in all human history where a, a, a nation is taken out of its homeland and yet it maintains its national identity and then returns to its homeland 2,000 years later. Ezekiel said it happened. It happened in 1948. But in that same prophecy, when he's talking about the last days, what does he say? And my servant David will be king over them. Has that happened yet? No. And they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers live, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And so this messianic kingdom, this millennial kingdom, which I believe, you know, so you read, Matthew talks a lot about the kingdom of God. I think Jesus was actually offering at that time, but they rejected it when they rejected him. This is the kingdom that he is going to establish. And he, as the heir of David, will rule and reign. And because of that, it's going to be a kingdom that is known for righteousness and known for peace. So one of the reasons it'll be known for righteousness is what we just let, read. Satan, the dragon, the serpent of old, is going to be bound for a thousand years. I think that implies not only Satan, but all his minions, all the demons. They're, they're going to be restrained. They're not going to be there to tempt and to... to Put the conflict and the spirit you know we talk about the spiritual war the spiritual battle we, many of us see it even what's going on in our nation today between right and that's going to be gone now when you think about the kingdom it doesn't mean that it's going to be there's going to be a sinless place because there's still mortals going in god hasn't put an end to all of that but the temptation part satan worked to, to fight against the, the work and the people of God will be gone. So it's going to be a time of righteousness. Isaiah put it like this in Isaiah 11. But with righteousness, he'll judge the poor. 
decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, and he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So think of a place where it's only justice. Truth is always found out. There's no, uh, there's no need for uh, fact checkers, right? Because it's all true. A, a, a time when it doesn't matter whether you're important or not, you have money or not, justice is justice. And that's what this is going to be. It's going to be a time of, of truth and fairness and everyone treated equally. It's going to be wonderful. In Isaiah, it goes on beyond that, and it says, and he will judge between the nations and will render decision for many people, and they'll hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Won't that be a good day? Right? There, there's going to be no riots in Atlanta and people getting killed. There's going to be nothing going on in Ukraine. There's going to be a time of peace. There's another interesting thing about the kingdom, the millennial kingdom that's unique, that's different than today. And that is, it is going to be populated by both those who are still living or mortals. So at the end of the tribulation, you go to Matthew chapter 25, all that are alive will stand in judgment. It's called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And those that are alive at that time who followed the Lord uh, and knew him, so saved, they go into the kingdom. Those that don't go to judgment. So it's the judgment of sheep and goats. So this, is, this whole kingdom is populated with these folk coming out of great tribulation who know Jesus, but they have not yet died. But did you notice what verse 4 said? And, and these came to life. So those that were beheaded, those that had died for Christ during the tribulation, they come, to, they come back to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Next week, we're going to talk about the rapture. And as I mentioned, there's different ideas of when the rapture takes place. The rapture is about us, right? It's about all those who have already died in Christ or with Jesus and those who of us who are alive and remain to his coming, right? It talks about how we changed in a moment of a twinkling of an eye. Come back next week, we're going to get into all of that. But no matter when you think the rapture happens, it everybody knows it happens before this and that you and i are actually who know jesus we will have our glorified body and we'll be in the kingdom we get to serve revelation 5 10 says you made them to be a kingdom of priests to our god and they will reign on the earth paul even talked about this in second corinthians do you not know that the saints will judge the world when do we judge the world in the kingdom but kind of unique, eh? You got mortals and those that are in essence immortal because they've received their resurrected body. That's what he's talking about. They're part of that first resurrection. Unique. Another thing that's unique is that a lot of the curses removed. So 
the curse that came upon animals after Noah came out of the ark, right? Now there's going to be a fear, and now it's not all going to be plant eating, right? The, the, there'll be meat eating, and that's all going to change. Isaiah talks about the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, right? If you have that today, you got problems, but not then. A little boy will lead them, and also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The wean child will put his hand in a viper's den, right? The, a big part of the curse has been lifted. And not only that, there will be a time of, of healing. Isaiah, Isaiah 35 puts it like this, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue and the mute will shout for joy. So it's an incredible time. Now, sometimes people say, well, then are they going to live forever? No. But because of the absence of sin, they will live longer. There will still be death of those who have not died yet. And so they, too, will need to have come to faith in Christ. But they're going to live a whole lot longer. In Isaiah 65, it says, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Wouldn't that be a good day? If you've ever been touched by that. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Or the fact that because it's a time of justice, they've, they've walked in sin. So life will be lived. There will still be death. There will still be some of the effects of sin. But it's going to be way better than it is now. But then you come to verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hmm. So for a thousand years, Jesus is going to reign. For a thousand years, Satan is not allowed to work. But at the end of that thousand years, he's let loose again. Now, to the best of my knowledge, I, I was thinking about this. I, I think this is the only passage of Scripture that mentions this. And to me, it kind of begs the question, why? Right? Why do you let Satan loose again, right? We're, 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 I mean, we're almost to the perfect state, right? Paradise. We can only imagine today. I mean, it's kind of, you know, we live in this world of inequity and injustice and sickness and disease, and we keep thinking, man, how great it would be to live in that day, and you're going to let Satan loose again? Why? And wouldn't you know it? They don't tell us. So we can only speculate. Thought a lot about it because it's one that's left me scratching my head on many occasions. We'll see when we get there. But my hypothesis is this. 
God is altogether just and holy. He's altogether good, merciful, compassionate, full of grace. And yet at every turn, man has been the opposite since, the, since man has fallen. To every revelation of God to man, man has rebelled. To sending his son, they nailed him to a cross. And I kind of wonder if the reason for this is as all of the course of human history is coming to an end, if this is not just one more sign and, and picture for all of us to understand. I mean, think about all these people now, because everybody that went into the millennial kingdom is saved, but they're having kids. And they're living in this time like we, we would give anything to be in it. A time of peace and you don't have to lock your doors, right? And there's justice and there's not sickness and you're living long lives and, and, and all of this. And yet in the midst of that, they still rebel and do not come to put their trust in Jesus. May it be that picture contrasting one last time the goodness and the faithfulness of God to the darkness and the rebellion that is in man. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And the death in Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So finally, thousand years, Satan's loose, there's one more rebellion, and then God brings it to an end. And what we have now is this great white throne judgment. And this judgment is not to see like who gets to, to be with God for eternity. That's been settled. That's been settled. This is about those, all of those, from the beginning of time to the very last person who was born, who, who has come to that point of rebelling against God, of not accepting his gift of grace, and now they are going to be cast in the lake of fire. And it's, what it tells us, it's the great and small. Nobody misses this. I mean, the sea gives up their dead. Because you could think, oh man, if you're out at sea, right, who could, how could God bring you back? No, everyone is that doesn't know Jesus is in this judgment. And then it talks about the books are open and everyone is judged out of the books. Can I remind you that God who knows everything has a book on you and me and everything we've ever done and ever said and ever thought is recorded in that book. And one day that book is opened and we are judged. Now what are we getting in heaven or not? That's settled. We're those folks are going to hell. They're going to the lake of fire. But the degree of punishment, because obviously there are some that are worse in their rebellion than others. 
That's the great white throne judgment. And for those of us that know Jesus, aren't you glad that your book was dipped in the blood of Jesus, right? Because the blood of Jesus washes every sin away, never to be remembered again. Our book has been wiped clean through the blood of Christ. And we will never stand and give that account. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to stand and give an account. Jesus talked about for even every idle word. And judgment's going to be pronounced. And it will be just. And it will be holy. And it will be final. A lot of discussion. Lake of fire. Is that literal? A literal lake of fire? Is it figurative? Now, he, he actually, sometimes people even ask that about like the thousand years. The millennial reign is literally a thousand years. Well, it says a thousand years six times. I kind of take it as probably literal, right? He uses the expression lake of fire three times. I, again, would probably, I, I lean that it's literal. I think it's consistent with what Jesus said in Mark chapter 9. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire. That seems pretty consistent, right? A couple verses later, he comes back and says, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two to be cast into hell where their worm, their spirit does not die and the fire is not quenched. I believe it's literal. But let's just, for the sake of argument... For the sake of destruction or discussion, say, what if it was figurative? Okay, because the Bible does use figurative language. When does the Bible use figurative language? Well, when the Bible uses figurative language, when it's got an idea or a concept that we would have a hard time getting our arms around. I think in the Psalms, and it talks about how all creation lifts its praise to God, and we kind of look at it and go. How is that? And so it uses, the, it uses the picture like the trees of the field clap their hands, right? Well, we know trees don't have hands, but that's the picture. We, we can understand that, that. Okay, because in their being and doing what God has designed them to do, they, they bring glory to the Lord. So it's a, it's a picture. So what is hell really like if the only way God feels like he can communicate it to us is to communicate it to us as floundering in a lake of fire. Folks, do you, do you understand how bad hell is? In fact, some, uh, Rich was just mentioned, and I love this idea, the, the second death is ultimately, think of it as the final excommunication. Right? For those of us that know Jesus, we're going to get to spend all of eternity with him in the kingdom, as we're going to talk about here, in eternity. But for those who are not a part of that, they're spending eternity away from God. So from all goodness, from all grace, from all mercy, from all compassion, from all hope, from all relief, from all joy, from all sense of satisfaction, none of it is there. 
And that's why even here he contrasts this second death with the first resurrection. So he, then the end of verse 5, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who's a part of the first resurrection. Since there, over these, the second death has no power. He's even here trying to remind us that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for our sins. But three days later, he rose from the dead. That's what he offers as a free gift. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians, for as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, right? That's happened. And after that, those of us who are at Christ's coming, that's the first resurrection. At his coming, at his rapture, at his coming, at the beginning of the kingdom, all the saints of all the ages, we're a part of the first resurrection. And if you're part of the first resurrection, you don't have to fear the second death. But if you don't know Jesus, the second death is what you're going to face. We've entitled this, What's Next? Folk, as sure as we're here this morning, on this Sunday morning at 1027, there is a day coming where if you don't know Jesus, you are going to stand before him at this great white throne judgment and the books are going to be opened and the degree of your punishment is going to be determined by that book. The Bible is clear. And that's why Peter put it so beautifully there in Acts chapter 4 and there is salvation in no one else there's not salvation in you you can't clean up your life good enough it's impossible there's no salvation in a church there's no salvation in a sense of, of being baptized salvation there's salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby you must be saved and again, Jesus stands there, right? He came and he died for us. He's waving the flag. Listen, believe in me. I wash your sins away. You can be a part of the first resurrection, right? You can be in my family. You can rule and reign with me. And it could even be that in his mercy and his compassion, he's brought you here this morning or put you online to listen to this because he's trying to get you to understand that there is salvation in no one else, but he stands there. But there's not salvation on this day. Every single one of them are cast into the lake of fire. It's a serious thing. And oh, by the way, because I know my crowd, most of us are sitting here thinking, man, praise Jesus, I'm a part of that first resurrection. Yeah. But can I remind all of us that when we talk about living on mission, showing Jesus with our life and living Jesus with our lips and, and sharing Jesus with our lips, that's not just something we say. Folk, it matters. It matters. It matters. We got people all around us that are dying and they're facing the second death. And you and I are here as his ambassadors and that's what we are called to do because there's this day coming. I'm out of time and I got one more point. So I'll talk quick. You now switch. Verse 15, 
If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then, then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now we end into this eternal aspect of the reign of Jesus. It was upset for just a moment as Satan is loosed. But now Satan's been cast in the lake of fire forever. All of those who have rebelled against him and have not accepted him are cast in the lake of fire forever. Now, now Jesus begins that eternal reign. And it starts with recreation. The heavens, the earth. The word new there doesn't mean like uh, strangely new or really uniquely new. It's just the idea of fresh. It's, it's the idea of in qual- quality, that it's, it's new. A new heaven and a new earth. And that's where we're going to get to spend eternity. At the heart of it is we're going to get to spend eternity in relationship with God, like it, Adam and Eve had. Look at verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. We get to walk, talk, be in the presence of God. We get to live a life of purpose and meaning. I think one of the biggest lies that Satan has sold to our generation is this idea we get to heaven, we're going to sit around for all of eternity in a cloud, strumming some harp. Now, if you like harp music, I don't mean to be offensive. It's not my thing. Right? You don't hear harps and gospel, southern gospel music, right? It's, not, it's just not there. But that's not what's going to happen. In fact, if you look over in chapter 22, verse 3, it says this, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will, will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. God made us to work. There's going to be work in heaven, but it's not toilsome. It's not by the sweat of our brow. It's that which brings meaning and purpose. Man, life for all of eternity is going to be exciting. It's going to be an anticipation of what's next. It's going to be in the glory of God. That's what we get to do. And we get to live it all in this incredible city of the New Jerusalem. You've heard about the streets of gold, like in heaven. Well, there may or may not be, but that's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is the streets of gold that are so pure gold, they're translated. He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the New Jerusalem. You've heard about the pearly gates, right? Well, they're not pearly. They're made of a single pearl. But quite honestly, that's not heaven. That's the New Jerusalem. Each gate is made of a single pearl. That's what we get to enjoy. But, but folk, it all comes back to this issue. Is your faith in Jesus alone? Man, as I studied this week, I just thought, I can't... You know, I, I want to give information. I want to teach you the Word of God, but I can't let you just see this as information. This is going to happen. This is what's next. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to establish His kingdom. And at the end, He is going to have this great white throne judgment before we go into eternity. And all those who died without Christ. And you remember that verse that we looked at in the book of Hebrews? It is appointed man once to die, and then the judgment. There is no second chance. This is the day. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now, if you've not come to put your faith and trust in Jesus, man, I I don't know how you'd leave here without doing that. You can just do it in your heart, right? Jesus died for me. I want him to, to, to wash my book, my sins away in his blood. I want him to come and be my savior. 
If you've got questions when we're done, there are going to be people over here at prayer. They'd love to answer those questions. But for those of us that know Jesus, today matters. How you and I live matter. There are people all around us. We're the only Bible, the only Jesus they're going to see. This is what they're heading towards. We've got to live on mission.